Oh, praise the Lord, what a blessing, we appreciate that, and again, we're glad you're here today. Take your Bibles, find your will, John's Gospel, chapter number 8, John's Gospel, chapter number 8, find that place if you will. We ask your prayers, we have several folks again under the weather this morning, uh, Ronald and Alicia are not here with their family, brother Ronald is home, he says he has a very bad cold, he can't talk, uh, Alicia says she's enjoying the peace and quiet, I don't know what that means, but we uh, pray for them as they're, again, not feeling better, well, and that the Lord will help them well praise the lord i think my ipad died Boy, i hate technology how is that even possible john chapter number eight john chapter number eight i will do my best to preach from my heart with what I remember, what I studied this week. Now at this, there it goes. There, wow. Technology drives me crazy. You know, a piece of paper don't do this nonsense to you, amen? But then again, it can blow away. But uh, we're, uh, we're going to do what we can. I don't know why it's going crazy on me, but I do know my sermon, by the way. I went over it all this week, been thinking about it. And I trust... We'll look at this and we'll learn some things today from the Word of God. We've been going through John's Gospel for quite some time, looking at the sevens we find in this book. As we mentioned, there are seven miracles recorded in John's Gospel. There are seven times Jesus Christ uttered the phrase, I am. I am the bread of life. I am living water, so on and so forth. We looked at the seven witnesses, seven people who proclaimed their faith in Christ. Now we are looking at the seven conversations that Jesus Christ had with different women throughout our Bible. We saw Mary, his mother, in John chapter number 2. We saw the woman at the well, which is the lengthiest of all conversations found in the Gospels. And today we find ourselves here looking at this very important, very brief uh, conversation uh, with a woman whose name we do not know, just like we do not know the woman at the, uh, the well and her name. Uh, but we uh, do not know this woman, yet she has been... Uh, I don't want to say, well, I guess she's been a help to us in many ways. So let's take our time. And uh, I, may, I, I want us to, in these lessons, especially in these lessons, I want us to really delve into the human part of these stories. When you read the Gospels, if you neglect to take yourself and put yourself in the place of these people, what they're going through, what they're experiencing, and they're meeting with Christ, you miss a great deal. And so I've tried in, these, in the previous two, and I'm going to take us to a place you may be uncomfortable for a few moments, as we see this woman, what she was going through, and, uh, and how it worked out. When uh, the first conversation with Mary, his mother, they were at the wedding together. And so that was a conversation that came about because of a circumstance, the lack of wine. The second conversation was a conversation initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He purposely planned that, that visit. He designed to be there, and he instigated that conversation with the woman at the well. The conversation we're about to see now has not been instigated by anybody except a wicked crowd. This woman did not plan on having this conversation at all this day. And, of course, our Lord, being God Almighty, being Emmanuel, knew this conversation was on the docket and would take place. We read in our Bible in John chapter number 8 and verse number 1, Jesus went unto the Mount Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. 
And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said, Their master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that she, such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger on the ground, as though he had heard them not. And when they continued asking, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine, thou thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Jesus saith, And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father, bless this time and bless our hour now. We need your help. Speak to every heart. Uh, Lord, some are hurting, some are struggling, some have big issues in their life. But Lord, you are God and there's nothing big for you. There are some, Lord, who today might not be saved. Help them to understand the gospel, to see the sweetness and greatness of our Savior, willing to save the most vile amongst us and give them eternal life. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to look at several things, and I've alliterated this sermon. And uh, first of all, I want you to notice the calm. We so see in verse number 1 how it's early in the morning. He came into the temple, and there he sits in the temple. He comes to... Uh, Teach the people the Word of God. I want us to notice a contrast here, the contrast of a Jesus who lives a quiet life, a worshipful life, and how that is contrasted by the turbulent and judgmental lives of the religious people that we are about to meet here. Jesus was drawn into the turbulence. Jesus uh, is about to uh, come into this, but my, our Lord always lives a quiet life. And my friend, when we live for God... When we decide that we're going to live biblical principles and please Almighty God, uh, we will have peace within us and, and generally have peace about it. There is no peace to the wicked, the Bible says. They are like the sea, tossed about as the waves, and, and they're always uh, turbulent. Their lives are never at peace or rest. But to those of us who know God and serve God, we can rest in His peace because we know Him. Jesus, my friend, is the secret to a calm and peaceful life. Jesus Christ taught us that He, he got alone with His Father and prayed and talked. and He went up to the mountain. He got, found time to be with his disciples and to strengthen them and meet them and teach them the word of God. It's important for us as Christians that we gather together in God's chosen place, the local church, to meet and gather and, and fellowship around the word of God. And the Bible says that early in the morning, and early morning's time should be a peaceful time for us. We should get up early and rise and seek the Lord and, and find time while you're uh, eating your breakfast or whatever you do, drink your coffee and spend time in the word of God. That will give you a calm uh, day and uh, a, a way to approach what you're going to face out there. Our life of our Savior was one of worshiping God and, and teaching and ministering people. But he's about to have a moment here where the entire service is interrupted as they're having meetings there in that, that place, in the, in, that, uh, in the temple itself. When all of a sudden the doors will be burst open. I want to see, so we see the, the calm, but I want us to see the cruelty. And I want you to think with me, and I thought about this this week quite a bit, that there, in the scripture, the cruelest thing in scripture is the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, his trial, his beatings, and then his crucifixion. You can't find a more cruel episode 
than what took place to our Savior. But when we think about the Gospels, we think of uh, what other cruel episodes did man do to man? I think when we look at this story, we, we begin to think just how cruel this episode is right here and what took place and how cruel the religious crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be to this woman and what takes place with her right here. Now again, when we see Scripture, when we study Scripture, we, 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 uh, we try to make things that are relatable to us. We try to understand the human emotion involved. And, and again, speaking of Christ and, and what He's doing here, he's, uh, he's about to help somebody. And I think when we see Christ and what He does... Verse 4 tells us that they says that this woman that they've dragged in front of him, they caught her in the very act of adultery, the very act, the Bible says, in the very act. The Bible is very detailed about that. Now, true, she is committing adultery. Adultery is a very wicked sin. Adultery is a sin that has great repercussions. Adultery is not a sin that you commit unto yourself. It affects many people around you. Your spouse, the, the victim in that, is left to question their own self-worth, their own goodness, their own value in life. Uh, as a pastor, we deal with lots of people, and we deal, have dealt with this situation. And the hurt and pain that people go through when adultery is committed, uh, again, is very painful. And, it's a, and it affects so many people. It affects the children. If there's children involved, if, the, if it's involved with a church or a pastor or a leadership in a church, it affects an entire church and the community is affected by it. And the community may laugh and mock at a church when such sin takes place. Uh, nobody condones this behavior. And I am not here to try to hurt anybody who's ever been guilty of this sin. Uh, I am trying to point out to those who are still innocent or those who may have an eye that is looking somewhere else than homeward right now to warn you of a terrible danger that you may face. With that being said, I want you to place yourself, and again, there is not a more intimate or personal moment in a person's life than, than in this position right now, in this place right now, where somebody is with another human being. I want you to put yourself in this woman's place. You are committing adultery. You are in the midst of a very act of adultery when all of a sudden your door is kicked open and a group of men come rushing into the room. We can only imagine the terror that must have been going through this woman at this point in time. And by the way, I, I, don't, I don't, maybe I have time to prove this today, but I, 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 I tend and have always tend to lean towards the idea that this guy, this man was involved somehow. Because how else do you know when somebody's committing adultery? How do you know? They're secretive operations. They, they plan them and, and so nobody else will know. And, and uh, to, to know what's going on, I, I've always, and the fact that he's not dragged before the court, so to speak, I tend to think that this is part of the good old boys program going on here. But the fear that she must be going through when a group of men come rushing into the room that maybe... This is some attack upon her person and the shame and humiliation as she is dragged out of the bed and to be exposed in such a manner in front of a group of individuals that she does not know or maybe does know from being down in the temple. 
to maybe having some clothes thrown on her. No doubt they put something on her and they can drag her down the street, kicking and screaming and the shame and terror of it all. What's going to happen to me? If you put yourself in her place, you can imagine what she's going through and just how cruel this is. And they take her up to the temple where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and they throw her down in the midst and at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. She has been shamed publicly as she has been dragged through the city. Everybody in town is questioning and wondering what's going on. Why is so-and-so being dragged through the street? And word quickly makes its way around because the human tongue does not change that so-and-so has been caught in the act of adultery. And tongues will always wag and tongues will always speak. And so she has been shamed. She has been humiliated. She has been terrorized. And nobody likes to have fear. Nobody likes to be afraid. And especially in this terror where, you, where she finds herself. And then when she hears talk about being stoned to death, her fear must rise to a different level because being Jewish, she must know the law and that the law does say that if you're guilty of adultery, you will be stoned. That's the law. That's the Mosaic law. That's the ones we find in, 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 in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy outline this all for us. No doubt this woman wished she could have died a thousand deaths and instead of experiencing what she has just experienced. And again, it takes two to tango, as my mother used to say. And, and adultery involves at least one married person. Now, is she married or is she single? Is the man she's with, is he married or is he single? We don't know. One thing we do know, it's adultery. So somebody is married in this relationship. If they were both single, the Bible would have declared it fornication. And fornication is a word that can apply to married people as well because the word fornication is the word pornea. We get pornography from that word. And fornication is a word where somebody is involved in a continual act of sexual perversion. And so a married person, I've known many married individuals who were involved in fornication and in perversion and it was not with their spouse. So we can imagine, again, taking yourself, putting yourself here, and the absolute shame. We do not know what type of woman she was. We always have the Sunday school drawings of this pretty woman laying on the ground here. But again, sin has a way of making people ugly. We don't know if this was a continual lifestyle or was this a one-time affair. We do not know what, uh, much about her. In fact, there are some people in theological circles who say that this story really doesn't fit in the scriptures and it's kind of out of place and doesn't belong here. And I do not believe that. I, I believe our Bible is perfectly preserved and, and this Bible and this story does fit perfectly here. And I'm thankful this story is in the Bible because it encourages us and it will help us. So again, we see the cruelty here and how cruel human beings are now being to another human being to, to take this woman and to put her through this absolute shame and humility. And if she is a married woman, you understand that later on when this is all said and done, she still has to walk back through the city that she was just dragged through with everybody looking at her, and she does have to go back home, and, and she does have to give an account to her husband if she is a married person in there. There's a lot of things that this woman is going to have to deal with. And by the way, that's the way sin is, by the way. You can never get involved in sin and think, you know, nothing's going to happen. 
Sin always has a larger price tag than you ever thought it was going to have. Now, who instigated this adulterous relationship? We do not know. Who started it? Who flirted with who? And was again, was this a lifestyle? Was this an ongoing adulterous relationship between these two people? Was this a one-time affair? It really doesn't matter. She's guilty. And she's guilty of a very, very, very bad sin. And the law condemns her. And now they want to stone her. And they're throwing her at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and demanding what he says should happen. But I want us to understand, again, from a legal standpoint, legally speaking, these men were correct in what they were saying, that this woman did deserve to die. That's the Jewish law. I won't take time because we're pressed for time this morning, but again, the Bible says that if, and the Bible teaches that if in, in for Old Testament under Mosaic law, which we are not under, by the way, that if a person is guilty of adultery, both the man and the woman will be stoned to death. So both parties have to get stoned. And again, we only find one person here. The guy is nowhere to be found. Adultery is a sin. We have our Ten Commandments on the wall here, and I want to remind you that number seven, I believe it is, is thou shalt not commit adultery. It's no wonder they don't want that hanging in the courts of our country today. Convict too many judges and lawyers, amen? You shouldn't say things like that, Pastor. The things I know about the people in this town growing up here, not from a ministry standpoint, but just growing up and knowing what goes on. So again, the woman's guilty. She deserves to die. Leviticus 20, verse number 10, demands that both of them should die. And again, if justice was all they sought, again, why bring the woman to Jesus Christ? Why not bring the man? Why not try her and, and, and both of them in the courts? Why are they just bringing her to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, again, the, the, the motive of the Pharisee here was, again, merely using this woman. Again, how cruel do you have to be? Let's tra- we want to trap Jesus. And they're always thinking of some way, how can we trap the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we trap him? I know. Let's, uh, this is an idea. How, how demented, how sick, how perverted the, the human mind must be to come up with this plan. That this is what you think of. To, to find somebody in the act of adultery and drag them and throw them in the front of Jesus. And again, this is supposed to be somebody who's religious. And that's all they are, by the way. They're, they're religious, but they're not moral. They're not righteous. They're not godly. These are reprobate people. To, to come up with such a plan. That, to think, that, let's do this to another human being. Doesn't make sense. But they're using her just for a trap and, and to, to trap the our Savior. And so again, testing him, they throw him at her feet. And we see the the woman's accusers. And we see the conviction, by the way, in verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And so when they continued to ask him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Now, the woman's accusers thought they had the Lord between what we would call the proverbial rock and the hard place. He's got nowhere to go. 
I mean, this is, this is the law, and, 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 and this is the sin, and we got the sinner. What are we going to do? If, if he objected to stoning her, he would be guilty of opposing the Mosaic law and thus discredit his claim to be the Messiah. Now, they've thought this thing out, have they not? On the other hand, if he agreed with her accusers that she should be stoned, his reputation for compassion for sinners would be destroyed. After all, we see him always having compassion with sinners. And that's so again, what's he going to do? And further, the Jewish leaders could then report him to the Romans as having instigated an execution in defiance with Roman authority. Now, I understand these are Jewish people. They're under Mosaic law, but they can't carry out some of the laws of the Mosaic law because they are under Roman authority. And you just can't kill people because, well, your Mosaic law says so. Rome says, no, that's not how it works. You have to go through our court system. And one thing about Rome, uh, Rome was a perverted place, but Rome did have some laws, and Rome did frown on adultery. If you were single... The, the gates were wide open. But if you were married, Rome did frown on this sin. And by the way, most societies do frown, if they're a decent society, frown upon this sin. Today we elect them to governors and mayors and, and, and presidents. But, uh, back, but when we had some morals and sense about us, uh, we wouldn't elect these people. We wouldn't vote for these people. If you're old like I am, I think it was, and somebody correct me, uh, I think it was 80, the 84 election. A Democrat was running, and he was accused of having an affair. Gary Hart, my God, Gary, and, and, and Gary Hart. He had a, he jumped, he dropped out of the race. But yet they keep elected. They kept electing Ted Kennedy as senator up there in Massachusetts, and that was the most perverted, godless reprobate and murderer on planet Earth. But strange world we live in. But today it's a badge of honor. Well, you know, it is what it is. It's called sin. It's called sin. So what are we going to do? So again, if Jesus said, let's just stone her. Jesus is defying the Roman government. And we can't stone her because the Roman government says so. They got this thing. They got Jesus in this circle, so to speak. So the challenge brought by the scribes and Pharisees also raised a deeper issue. Namely, how divine justice and mercy are to be harmonized. And one thing we must realize, which this, the world has no recognition of, is that God is a holy God. God does not commit sin. God does not even think about committing sin. He's holy. When the angels fly around the throne room of God, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. When Isaiah, in chapter 6, saw the Lord, he fell down and he, and he said that he had as a man of unclean lips, woe is me, for I am undone. When Peter saw the Lord, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When we get a dose of God, my friend, people are always immediately convicted of their sinfulness and just how vile we are in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And not only is God holy, but his law is holy. So I don't like that stoning in the Old Testament. My friend, that's God's law. I want you to think about that. That's God gave that law. Moses didn't think about that. God gave that law. And the law is holy, the Bible says. And the commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good, the Bible says in Romans chapter number 7. But I want us to understand something, that the law 
knows nothing about forgiveness. You are either guilty or you're not guilty. There's no in-between in the law. That's all you got. Are you guilty or not guilty? Well, you know, it's kind of a funny snow. Guilty or not guilty? Is this woman guilty of adultery? What's the answer? Yes. She is guilty. The law says she's guilty. We know she's guilty. And the law knows nothing. The Bible teaches us that when we sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the price tag. There's no gray. There's no white area. It's all dark. You're guilty, then you die. What is mankind? Mankind is guilty. And if we want to argue that point, we can't really have salvation or know anything about salvation until we come in God's courtroom with our filthy, vile clothes and realize, I am condemned, I am guilty. Because God's law, which is perfect, says I'm guilty. And a holy God will not give me bad laws. And so I stand before a holy God condemned because I am guilty of all these sins. Ezekiel, you want Old Testament, Ezekiel says that what? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. My friend, if your soul has sinned, according to God, it will die. Don't eat the fruit, because the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Now you say they didn't die physically. No, we die spiritually. Spiritual death separated from God. The Bible teaches us, again, in, in Romans, for as many who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I, I get to heaven, my good's going to outweigh my bad. No, it's not that. It's, are you guilty? Yes, but I did all these good. No, 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 no. I don't care how much good you did. Did you do this? Well, yeah, but, no, 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 no but. Did you do this? Yes. Guilty. Death. This woman, is she guilty? Yes. What's the law say? The law says death. She has to die. That's what we have here. The Bible says, For the law worketh wrath. So then, how does God forgive sinners without violating his holy law? I mean, we just can't, God, it's okay. As parents, we may say that to our children, it's okay, and, and, and let them get off with something. The answer is, how does a sinner get away with How does a sinner obtain forgiveness when the law condemns us? My friend, the answer is Jesus Christ. His sacrificial death fully satisfies the demands of God's justice, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter number 8. And those who put their faith in him are justified as a, as a gift by his grace through redemption. I want us to understand something. Here's a... Here's a condemned woman here's an adulterous woman that's that's who she is there's no no mistaking that that's who she is over here's law and law says you are going to die but i want you to understand between the sinner and death and law is calvary's cross where jesus christ stands and jesus christ satisfies The law's demands, because Jesus Christ goes to Calvary's cross as the sacrifice for the sinner. 
And so the believing sinner doesn't deal with the law. The believing sinner looks to Jesus Christ and through him we obtain mercy and forgiveness because he has satisfied the law's demands. So in Jesus Christ, divine justice and mercy are harmonized. Mercy and truth. Here's truth. You die. And here's Christ. Mercy. How can mercy and truth come together? They come together through Christ. Again, loving kindness and truth. The Bible talks about how they... Look if you're, look if you're very quickly at, at Psalms 85. I want you to see this verse. It's a very important verse in your Bible. Old Testament, by the way. Some people think we just find grace in the New Testament. You know where I find grace? Right outside, the, right there in the garden. Adam, where are you? I'm over here. I'm hiding. I'm afraid. By the way, when men sin, what is their reaction? Fear. What is the reaction of this woman with her sin? She's afraid. Sin always brings fear. It's just how it is. Psalm 85. I'll find it eventually. He says in verse number 10, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I like that verse, my friend. We ought to memorize it. Mercy. God's mercy. The truth. You're guilty. Mercy and truth and, and righteousness and peace. They've kissed each other. What a picture of love there that God has for us. God Almighty pours out His wrath against sin. How? He pours it out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So he can pour out upon the believing sinner grace and mercy. Jesus Christ, my friend, as the Bible says, is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. This is not only prophetic sense, but it's also in the sense of an application. My friend, the sinner cannot be saved until he makes the application. Until he takes that gift and, 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 and believes upon it. All throughout redemptive history, all who were forgiven and given eternal life, we're looking and look towards Jesus Christ. So in this dramatic scene in the temple courtyard has reached its, 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 its zenith here. The woman, her sin publicly exposed, has been humiliated. She's terrified, thinking she's about to be stoned. The scribes are jubilant and excited, thinking that they have caught Jesus in this, in this dilemma. And, and, and how is he going to get out of this? And the crowd was hushed, watching how Jesus would react. And we know how he gets down the ground and begins to write in the earth. And again, we all want to know what Jesus wrote. We've got a lot of ideas. We've got a lot of ideas. I like a lot of them. By the way, this is the only time you'll ever find Jesus writing in the Bible. We find him speaking and praying, but this is the first time it's ever recorded of Jesus ever writing something. And my friend, more books have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person who ever walked on planet Earth. There are pros and cons, but more things have been written about the one who is now writing on the ground. And again, I think it's interesting when we see him here and what he's doing and what has happened. What, he, what is he writing and what is he saying here? And of course, 
Uh, I'd like you to take your Bible, look if you will, at Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. Some people think that he was writing the names of, of, of women on the ground. Why would he write that? Well, again, this is the scribes and Pharisees. It's a group of guys here. And uh, you start writing your, your side chick's name on the ground. It might start getting somebody's attention, Amen. Because remember, it all goes later on with the story when he says, he among you without sin cast the first stone. Well, what sin are we talking about? I think really, if we just stay within the context, I think he's not talking about every sin, who's ever not guilty. I think he's talking about this sin in particular. Who has not been guilty of this sin? And by the way, adultery is a sin our Savior taught us is also committed just in the mind alone. Just in the mind alone. A person can be guilty of this sin. And by the way, most sins always start in our mind and in our heart before we ever act out upon them. We just don't wake up, hey, I'm going to do this at the split moment. No, we, how can I plan this? What's my maneuvers going to be? In Jeremiah chapter 17, there's a lot of people think maybe he was writing this. And again, we don't know, but I think it's good to even look at it. Verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel... All that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living waters. My friend, now who has forsaken the Lord? This woman? Yes, she has. Have these religious rulers forsaken the Lord? Well, yes, they have. They're all guilty. And the Bible says their names shall be written in the earth. My friend, this is... I think, maybe possibly, what he wrote there. Again, I could be wrong. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Right. Well, Lord, what were you writing on the ground? He may say it's none of your business. <laughs> and I'll say thank you, and I'll, and I'll go on from there. Well, again, maybe this is what he, We've all forsaken God. All of us. There's none righteous. No, not one. We go back to John chapter number 8 and we see the clemency here. And again, we haven't even got to the conversation because it's a very brief conversation, but it is a conversation nonetheless that he has here. And again, again, verse 7, he's without sin cast the first stone, he wrote on the ground. And, and verse number 9, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even on the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Christ, when only Christ and the accused woman were left from this episode, Christ gave the woman some very instructive counsel here. We see the asking about her accusers. Again, woman, again, the, we've seen this, Christ always uses this phrase in dealing with people. It, it is not an intimate phrase, but it's not a derogatory phrase. It's just, it's the wordage of the day. It is a polite and mannerly way of talking to somebody. Just in a way, again, as I said last Sunday morning, you may say, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, sir. You don't know the person, but you are being polite in conversation. The word woman, again, is a polite phrase in Bible days. Today, if we said it, somebody, you know, everybody flipping out, you know. We may say it jokingly, woman, what are you doing? Or we may say, woman, what's your problem? And next thing you know, then the whole world starts falling apart. But in Bible days... Woman, it's a polite phrase. And he uses it with, it with Mary. 
He uses it, the woman at the well, and now we see him using it here, and we'll see him use it again later on. So the first time someone actually addresses the woman in this conversation, the one who was the, the focal point of the whole story has not been approached, not been talked to, or not been addressed, and nobody's asked her anything. She lays there on the ground, absolutely humiliated and shamed and terrified, and she's in front of Almighty God, the judge of all the earth. And, what she, and who does she know? What does she know about Christ? Uh, what does she think about him? What has she heard? We do not know. We don't know anything. She comes out of nowhere, and she will disappear into nowhere. We don't know any more about this dear woman. So again, writing on the ground. And again, by the way, he's down there at her level, by the way. I like that. He stooped down. He's writing on the ground. She's laying on the ground. My friend, when Jesus saved me, he reached down to me. I couldn't get up to him, but he reached down to me. And I don't care how bad or how far you go down, the hand of God can reach down and pick you up out of the hole where you are. So our God is not standing hovering over her like the religious crowd. He's down there on the ground writing something and looking her square in the eye and saying, Woman, where are your accusers? As she looks at the entire room, has just been emptied out with one little phrase. And again, if it's this idea of adultery and the whole entire crowd packed up and left, that's pretty bad, is it not? But don't think these people righteous. They're not. Just because they're there and they wear those long robes and they're, they're, most of them are bad people. We know some good men in there, but the vast majority are bad. Now, forgiveness, as we see here, neither do I condemn thee. Verse number 11. Forgiveness does not imply a license to sin. Jesus did not condemn her, but he did not uh, command her to... Uh, but he did command her, I should say, to abandon her sinful lifestyle. My friend, that's the key. Today we want, yeah, Jesus loves you, keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. Jesus loves you. It's all cool. Well, no, it's not. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? No man, Lord. That's a simple, short conversation, but it's a conversation nonetheless. I don't condemn you. Stop doing what you're doing. It's compassionate, but stern. And Jesus saved you, my friend. I saved you. You want to stop doing those things? Yeah. You want to stop doing those things? Because you, you shouldn't be doing those. I can do whatever I want. Jesus loves me. No. No. You got to stop. Because you're a child of God now. The verdict, neither do I condemn thee. Again, it was not rendered as a simple acquittal or a non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a, a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently. My friend, the, the liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, turning from, away from sin. Sin is not to be treated and sin was not treated lightly by Jesus Christ. It's okay, we all do it. No! we got to stop. I'm a child of God now. I, I need to live differently so the world knows I'm different. This asking the woman about her accusers and finding she had none permitted Christ to be merciful. 
to the woman who had yet to keep the law. By the way, the law in Deuteronomy required two witnesses. How many people are left in the room? Nobody. So if we're going to follow the law, by the way, could Jesus condemn her? No, because there's no witnesses. <laughs> there's no witnesses, my friend. With no witness, Christ, in accordance with the law, could not condemn the woman. Therefore, he could keep the law and still be merciful to the woman, something the critics did not believe was possible. My friend, you can never get the best of Almighty God. Just quit trying and just believe him. Christ is always wiser than his enemies. And again, this, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Grace is, is not apart from truth. In the text, it, it does not condone sin. It is it's the idea that it, it, con, it, it condemns the sin. Go and sin. Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying? He's saying adultery is sin. It's wrong. Woman, don't do that anymore because that's sin. And we want to always excuse sin today. The woman, again, was guilty and according to the law of Moses, but Jesus Christ came and he puts the cross between her and the law. And again, this very embarrassing, this very humiliating, this very shameful experience that was meant to crush and destroy this woman and the Lord Jesus Christ has been flipped around and turned into a wonderful blessing. What started out as a very awful and tragic uh, thing for this lady, first of all, the, the adulterous bedroom, and then the shame of being caught and dragged down the street, and then thrown in front of Christ has been absolutely the worst possible thing that could ever happen. But I'm glad Jesus was there, because Jesus always takes what's horrible and can turn it into a good thing and make it into a blessing. What men meant for evil, God can turn it into good. You think, my, I screwed up my life, preacher. Did you give it to Jesus? Because Jesus has a way of, of taking those things and turning them around and using for his good. Again, my friend, so we see this lady here, a simple conversation, just a short conversation. Where are your accusers? No man condemns thee. And her conversation is even shorter. Just three words. No man, Lord. No man, Lord. She calls him Lord. You said, you think she got saved? I think she got saved. Now, she didn't say a sinner's prayer. Nobody led her down the Romans' roads. You didn't hear about John 3.16 yet, but she knew she was guilty, and she knew there was mercy, and she knew Christ, and she got saved here. You get to heaven, you're going to meet her. By the way, when they form a... And by the way, let me help you with this before I close. There's no church yet. And, I want to, and this is a warning. Even though she found mercy and grace, she still has to live with what she's done, does she not? She still has to go home. And adultery is a funny sin, by the way, in the sense that some people can work through it and, and, and move on and, and try to put the marriage back together. For some people, it's a nail in the coffin. I'm done. Done. I, I, I can't. I say, which we, again, it's up to the person. We are to forgive and move on, but it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible sin to move on from. So I don't know what happens when she goes home. I don't know what happens. I don't know who her husband is, if she is married. But she's going to have to deal with this. And my friend, we are forgiven, we have received mercy. 
But those scars we still carry. And our mind on strange moments will say, hey, remember that time when you did that stupid thing? And you're like, shh, not now. I don't want to think about that now. Yeah, let's think about it now. And your flesh is going to remind you of all the sin you committed. Maybe the people you hurt and the shame you caused. So it's best not to commit sin in the first place, is it not? It's best to warn those who are still innocent or those looking down that path to say, you don't want to go down that road because it's a tough road to walk back down out of. The woman that was dragged down the street has to walk back down that street. But she walks back differently, though. She walks down a child of God. And that, my friend, will make all the difference. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for grace that's found at the foot of Calvary. Thankful we got a Savior who does not condone our sin but forgives them.